0: Electric Friends, a Gary Newman podcast, celebrating the tracks by a musical pioneer.
1: Hello, I'm Tom, and thanks for joining me for a new episode of Electric Friends, a Gary Newman podcast, and this time we've got another special interview, and it's with a bona fide legend in the history of Gary Newman's music. Chris Payne joined Gary Newman's band Tubeway Army just before they became stars in 1979 and stayed with Gary's band for his next few albums, including Replicas, The Pleasure Principle, and Telecon. Even after Gary's short-lived live retirement, Chris continued playing as part of his live band the rest of the 1980s, and he has reunited with Gary a few times since then, including his Wembley Arena show in 2022. He has composed, scored, conducted, and recorded lots of different types of music over the years, including his orchestral and choral works in London and Prague. He is an incredibly talented musician, playing keyboards and viola on many recordings, and has specialised in medieval instruments too. Chris very kindly spoke to me at length about his time with Gary, the Dramatist project, and much more including several of your questions so enjoy this interview and i'll speak to you at the end well so obviously you know this podcast is all about the 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 music of of gary newman so it only makes sense to speak to some of the people who were you know a big part of his musical history Um, but but let's start with um, what you were doing before meeting gary Um, for those who don't know like what was your musical background at the time
0: well, uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting. I came from a, a music college, classical music college background and uh, studying there for three years or so. And I was just about to, uh, after I left there, I was going to do a sort of postgraduate course at uh, one of the colleges to study early music. Because during my sort of time at um, music college, as I said, it, it's not like music colleges today. You talk about 1975, you know, percent. Mm. So it was kind of very stultifying classical music, sort of, or um, based on you know theory and history and, and everything else. I mean, I did enjoy it. Don't get me wrong; it was really, really good. But um, I decided, like I, you know, I, I never like to follow something rigid. So uh, one of the lecturers was into something called early music. Okay, so I became passionate about that. <laughs> Ended up joining a little outfit for a while called Musica Antica. It sounds very highbrow, doesn't <laughs> it? And um, and and there lies a certain sort of irony that I left music college in 1978, took out took a gap year, and I was going to go back and sort of study early music. That was my passion. Okay, mm. ended up joining Gary and playing synthesizers. So I kind of went from 1479 to 1979 <laughs> in yeah. one you know short step. Um, so yeah, that's maybe my background. And I study study instrument was viola. Um, mm-hmm. I'm known as a keyboard player, but I was such a lazy bastard. I wasn't interested in it. You know, my lessons were like yeah, going through the motions. I couldn't be bothered. Uh, I use always use the piano as like a tool for composing rather than anything else. So viola was the main one, and of course, then there's this uh, wrath of medieval instruments behind that. Um, they wanted to encourage me to do violin, which I obviously did, but I wasn't. I mean, my passion was a viola. It was because. There again, I like doing things which are different. You know, mm. viola. no one wants to play in it. No one wants to be the viola player. They want the violin or the cello, you know, <laughs> don't you know or flute or whatever. Um, so a kind of predominant instrument, whereas the viola has always been the kind of forgotten soul of the orchestra, you know, but uh, suited me fine, you know, because it's a beautiful, beautiful... Mm. Someone's told me it's the noblest instrument in the orchestra, and I get that. <laughs> uh, of course, we're also the, you know, I don't know if you know this as well, but viola players... Have the piss taken out of them relentlessly by fellow orchestral players. And uh, uh, there you go. So there you go. So from one century to another century, or to the modern times, back then it's 1979, it's like, yeah. wow, okay, I've got to really catch up here. Synthesizers, what the hell is that? Um, And uh, when well, I went for my audition uh, with Gary Newman at Earl's uh, Court in London, this would have been, I'm not sure, actually, it's either late 78 or early 79, I'm not quite sure, but let's call it late 78. And uh, so I went up there, armed with a, I had a keyboard, a Honus string machine, you know, which I borrowed off the keyboard player for my for my band, you know, a band called Crucible, who, funny yeah. enough, were a medieval rock band <laughs> at the time. And um, so I went up to Earl's Court, met with Gary and Paul and Jess Ledyard, who uh, was the original drummer, Gary's uncle. And uh, I think it was in the basement of Vegas Banquet, I remember correctly, so I'm sure it was actually. Martin Mills, head of Vegas, was there as well. Mm. And so I was just confronted by these like keyboards, and Gary turned around and said, "Do you know about synth? I'm like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sure." "Yeah, I've yeah. heard of Rick Waitman and you, <laughs> <Yeah>. you, know. <laughs> so confronted with this thing, I thought, "Okay, right. Okay, I can see this. Let's equate this to a, a pipe organ. I can see there that's 1632. You know, eight. These are obviously you know to be able to establish where your sound's going to be, whether it's high or low. There's a filter mm. there, and so I try to keep it simple." I just jammed along and whacked a while way and just like did my as flash as I could at the time you know mm-hmm. and uh, uh and then I picked up the viola I put my viola on electric viola and I played that Gary was blown away by that because of course he was a fan of Ultrabox and Billy Carr mm-hmm. being a fellow viola player violinist and um, and and, yes, he, he, so he, he put a big star by me, and Barty Bell said, that's great, you'll be hearing from me, and uh, that was it. The audition passed. And I yeah. turned up, at the time I was working for the local council, so I sort of, hair down here, a, a terrible moustache, a donkey jacket, and sort of like work boots, you know, uh, really looked the part. <laughs> I just turned up, and it's like Gary with like blonde dyed hair and uh, maybe a bit of makeup on and an earring, and Paul, you know, looking quite cool and the rest of it. it and yes, to me, who looked, he wasn't old at the time, but to me, he looked old because he was Gary's uncle, so yeah, he dude yeah. in his early 30s when I'm twenty two or whatever. Oh, yeah.
1: But like an old <laughs> man, a <laughs> <laughs> But how how long how quickly did it take then for you to like adapt fully to playing these things? Because I'm assuming these are quite big machines as well. Wasn't like the exactly like well, same well, down but, version.
0: Well, that's right. Uh, well, I had to, it was a steep learning curve, and actually. Uh, when we started rehearsing, Gary realized that I didn't have a great synth knowledge, but he didn't care. you know mm. said right there's a mini moog. Um, go in and 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 just learn it. And uh, at the time, biggest Banquet had a record shop in Ealing High Street and Sed and I, said the drummer and first uh, mm. was sharing uh a, like an apartment above it. and uh, above that there was another um, very very prominent member of biggest Banquet called Steve Webant. I don't know if you know or heard of, but he was mm. very active and prominent um, for beggars. I do believe he still is. And uh, I was just sort of um, in that in, in that apartment we said, and driving everyone mad, plugging in the mini move and just you know just spending hours and hours working it out. And actually, it didn't take long to work it out. And and the thing about Gary was that he did like um, well, his his style, his music became synonymous with that big, massive sound. You know, the mm. deep. Uh, uh, you know sixteen, sixteen, thirty-two, 32 or the oscillators or whatever and then mm. you know uh, using the filters using resonance and cut off and stuff you know to shape the sound and uh, make it either buzzy or very rounded so it's very much low end a lot of it and um, which is unusual for the time because from what I remember and I might be wrong in saying this there may have been other people doing it but most Moog stuff were these like incredibly horrible solos you know <laughs> jazzy solos oh, yeah, know, yeah. I really hated that and uh, he took it uh, to. A, he was using it in a different, in another sort of dimension to to complement the sort of dystopian sound that he wanted. So yeah, steep learning curve. Well, I kind of got there. I, you know, gradually when you understand the fundamentals of analog synth, you know, it's it's kind of easier to adapt to others. And when, when you're using polymoogs, I mean, you know, it a, you know, you just push Fox humana and then you go, you got the sound. You didn't really have to do a lot with it. Um, so I, I don't think you really filter much in the way of polymoogs. So. Uh, Gary used uh, a lot of um, effect pedals like, at the time, MXR, phasers, flanges, and stuff like that to create sounds and messing around with all sorts of effects rather than, than uh, anything else. And I had an interesting one. In fact, Billy had the same, actually. It was a, gosh, I can't remember the same name exactly, but it's a Roland echo chamber with a tape mm. machine. Uh, I had the orange one, He had the green one, you know, so I had the more modern one, so I <laughs> <laughs>
1: And obviously, and, uh, you, know, you, you know, we'd had like obviously bands like Kraftwerk and Ultravox before, but did it feel like you were like this pioneering group of, of musicians at the time? Did it feel like you were part of something special that was growing?
0: Uh, in a way, yes, but musically, I wasn't really aware of it. I'd heard of Kraftwerk, I listened to them. I had an album which I bought called the Faust Tapes, you know, back mm. in the day, and I was trying to get into sort of like what they horribly call Krautrock, you know, uh, the German sort of electronic thing. Tangerine Dream was another one. And, um, so I was kind of aware of it, but um, I wasn't aware of Ultravox. Uh, I'd heard of them, but I didn't know anything about them. So when I when I listened to Systems of Romance, that kind of opened up a whole, you know, uh, sort of area of music which I didn't really know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I uh, there's another thing Gary did. Gary, Gary gave me loads of records, you uh, Ultravox, uh, Sparks, even uh, mm-hmm. anything with a synth in it, you know, so I could get my head around it. Yeah, but before that, obviously, <clears throat> dare I say it, being a bit of a band graph generator, Jethro Tolton yes, and Genesis prog rock fan, uh, mm-hmm. I'd only listen to Keyboards, you know, sort of the wildness of Keith Emerson and the talent of Rick Waitman was quite outstanding. But but, but Newman was taking it somewhere different. And uh, and, and this is going to sound very snobbish, and I don't mean to say it like this, I mean it like this, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't get my head around the simplicity of what he was doing in terms mm-hmm. of, Creating the um, the songs when he worked on the songs, and yet <clears throat> looking back on it, they were there's 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 some complicated stuff there. You know, uh, if you look at Down of the Park, you know the mm-hmm. keys in and uh, and 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 the way he because he calls himself he's always said to me oh, you know I'm not, I'm a non musician but he's not. I think he's a very talented musician and very creative. and uh, And you look at that and you go, yeah, that's quite remarkable. And his use of Unbelievable I amount mean, of use of what they call the uh, diminished fifth, or the di- 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 diabolistic music, as he used to call it, you know, the uh, interval which is very, very hard to sing. And yet he put it on, used mm. it, and he sang it as well, which is quite amazing. You know, it's in cars, it's in Our Friends Electric, it's in We Are Glass, you know, in various, i uh, uh, probably made quite a few. And that, that impressed me because it's so, so unusual. You know, it's an interval to be avoided, and he used it. <clears throat> and that, to me, helped create this dystopian sound. Now, I, I'll be honest as well. I've said this before. When I got into this, I sort of found synthesizers cold, unemotional mm. machines, you know. So, and and that comes from my sort of bit of a snobbish background in classical music. We had to have about, you know, a Vivaldi in and out of notes <laughs> <being played laughs> under, yeah. and uh, and and complex harmony and stuff like that, well, was complex as I understood at the time. Anyway, then he suddenly realised. I suddenly thought to myself, well, this is ridiculous, you know. I. I'm not here to judge this. This is actually quite groundbreaking. That's what I found it groundbreaking because, yes, they're cold, the sounds and stuff like that. But that's the sound he was wanting to he wanted mm. to create at the time. I mean, this this amazing, huge, uh, gothic, powerful. That's how I felt it because when we were on stage and playing, you know, not in rehearsal studios, we went to we went to actually put the set together um, and play for the first time. You know, about you know, huge, great. PA system you know it was thundering absolutely thundering and just when we thought it was thundering enough Gary was like no it's got to be bigger than that it's like well. <laughs> you know so no, it's a, it, it, was a, it, it, it was interesting how I quickly adapted to it looking back on it but I was a bit judgmental in terms of you know where's this going you know and I knew where it was going very quickly we'd go on the algorithm test and the top of the pops and then four weeks later at number one it was just, just a. It was a tornado. I don't know how how he dealt with it. I mean, it was just so, such a bizarre time to literally go from totally unknown, and in yeah, space of uh, you know four or five weeks, you know, he's, he, was a, he was the he uh, was the new guy on the block. You know, all, all of a sudden, he was like, everyone was talking about him. And you know yeah. what? Because he was doing something different.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, what, I mean, what were your first impressions of him? Because obviously, when you first met him, he hadn't, um, he wasn't famous yet. But he obviously had a vision, and but he was still very young. Like, what was what was your first impressions of him?
0: Well, first of my impression of him was that there's he was somebody who's incredibly focused, mm. absolutely focused, who so could shut down to stuff. Uh, like, uh, I remember when he, um, I mean, in the early days, I mean, mostly to be honest with you, to be fair, he would find the sounds for me. I'm not finding the sounds. I would just look at what he was doing. And he would, um, I'd stand aside and he would stand by a move and he was like like this, absolutely focused. You, you know, mm. a bomb could have gone off and it wouldn't have changed his, 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 mm. uh, what he was doing. You know, he, he, um, he, he had this amazing way of uh, focusing on something in particular and without any distraction. So I just li- looked at him and I so studied what he was doing saw how patient and, and uh you know um so focused he was and I thought, wow, you know, that's rare to have somebody to do that. Usually it's like, oh I want a bit like this, but you do that, you know, do mm. you know what I mean? You know, but no, he 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 was he was incredibly um almost pedantic about the sounds he wanted, you know?
1: Mm. And then oh, you mentioned it before you know it, you're on Ogre whistle test and 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 all, all that kind of thing. Like what was the memories of being on national television and and being seen by, you know, a massive audience?
0: Well, it was, uh, we rehearsed for for the old Grey Whistle Test because obviously, you know, it's a live performance Mm. and uh, it's live enough. I think it was recorded an hour before it went out, so it's as good as live. In other words, if you made a mistake, it's too bad. Um, We were well rehearsed. Billy had joined us by then. Um, And then there was Gary... Russell had joined us, another, keyboard, uh, sorry, another guitarist called Trevor Grant, who's a friend of mine, uh, and Cedric, of course. And uh, we rehearsed for about a week or so at Shepperton, as far as I can re- recall, maybe a bit less than that. And then it, we went to uh, the uh, studio to do the Argo Whistle So and that day sort of shot by, so you didn't really have much time to think about it or get worried or nervous. We just got on with it. Mm. But Curiously, uh, I guess that's what they did back in the day. Um, we had a stage, uh, obviously, stage fa- facing the host, who was Annie Nightingale. Mm. Perpendicular to that, you had another stage where they had the Scorpions, the German. Wow. The lot wow. Yeah. <laughs> and back uh, back uh, back in, back in back during those days, they had sort of very big cameras on what they call crane cameras. And and at the end of the, uh, the at, at the end of the Scorpion set, or two two or three numbers that we're doing. The crane camera moved back and hit the PA system on the left side and knocked it down just before we were going to go on. <sighs> and, uh, and I remember seeing Annie Nightingale behind her desk and she sort of gave this nervous laugh, you know, and the rest of it, and had to get on with it. And we are all frantically putting the PA back together, like, oh, my God, you know, so sort of, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen here? We're never we going to get this ready in time. And then total panic ensued. Then we got it together, and all of a sudden we are on stage and, bang, green light ready to go. He got so to be all serious. We don't realise that there was this mass <laughs> panic, right? And all of a sudden, we're on there looking like robots, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is quite ironic. And um, yeah, I uh, we, we got through it. To me, it just went in an instant. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's two numbers. I can't remember which, in which order but it's Our Friends electric and down. No, it was yes, Our Friends electric and down of the park. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, yeah, because Saturday Night Live in America that was praying to the aliens and cars. So cars, are, yeah, yeah. It would have been down the park. Um, our friends electric, and it just went bush like that. Yeah. Flash! All of a sudden, it was done. We went back. You know, we were. It, it was a, an exhilarating experience. Of course, you know, you can't, can't imagine it. You know, and uh, and all of a sudden, we were said so we were whisked off to some studio um, to do the backing track for Top of the Pops, as we used to do those those days. So this would be on a Tuesday night, and on the Wednesday, we turned up at the. Um, BBC Shepherd's Bush thing and uh recorded Top of the Pops for the Thursday broadcast. Yeah, it was it was a crazy 48 hours.
2: And
0: i
1: Well, it must have been just a crazy summer, I guess, that, that oh, was in 79. Yeah.
0: Absolutely crazy summer. The weird thing is, we were preparing for, a, for the first tour, which was going to be out in September, when the Pledge Principle came out mm. and, uh, and cars as well. And uh, and Gary said, Look, you know, do you want to go on? You know, I, I'm going to my old uh, um, holiday place in Portland Bill. Do you want to come along? Oh, I mean, yeah, nothing better else to do. So we just hired, you know, we hired a, those caravan type things sort of Portland Bill, Celsi, you know, that sort of area. And um, and and just and they're just wandering around the streets. Of course, he got mobbed. Well, virtually mobbed, you know. And for the first time, I saw him aware of his uh, of his celebrity status, you know, because mm-hmm. this would have been roughly July, uh, late July, August, something like that. So 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 poor Gary I had to sort of stay in the caravan and uh, and just hang out there, really. And after about five days, I mean, a couple of friends came down. There's a few. People there who were who, who were obviously fans, and so they came to the caravan and rested it. But Gary actually couldn't come out, which is <laughs> quite ironic. And a, and a sudden sort of weird, right, realization that you know life will never be the same again.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, the pleasure principle um, is next, and it's become such an iconic album now. What were your memories of making the album back then? And did it feel like this was a step up, and this, we were creating something special here?
0: It did. I was quite. Taken back by the, of the fact that, because he was a very good guitar player, and uh, he didn't use any, he didn't decide to use any guitar, he, he just hmm. wanted to really emphasize the, synth, the synthesizer aspect of his, his creativity. And uh, yeah, it was recorded at Marcus Studios, which is a brand new studio, and we had uh, um, uh, it's what they call downtime, in other words, we were recording from sort of 10 at night, 11 at night, through till 6 in the morning which wasn't ideal because, of course, you get really knackered at about four o'clock. And in fact, there's a, there's a, there's a rumour that I fell asleep when they were recording the back of tra- backing track of Cars and I was snoring through the bass drum. And then if you isolate it, you can pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got credit for that.
2: Yeah, you but- should have yeah.
0: No, but uh, no, it was, it was a very exciting time when we could actually stay awake. You know, it was very smooth. I remember it all coming together very quickly. Uh, I don't remember the exact amount of time you spent there, but I don't think it's more than 10 days, two weeks maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just, it, it, it was interesting because, of course, we were still playing live together. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the way things were done then. You know, said so you have a click track or a drum machine or something there for set and pull to play down there so you get the drums and the bass down. And Gary and I were just like filling in and maybe we'd keep some stuff if it was good enough because we obviously were doing, we were DI'd straight into the desk so there was no, no, no danger or anything spinning over. Drum, drums were segregated. Ball's bass was, I don't know if it's DI, I can't remember if it's DI, uh, direct, uh, direct to desk or it was through an amplifier. But anyway, a lot of those tracks were put down together. And uh, another thing I remember, which is amazing, was like all the tracks were done are no vocals. And, Gary sang and double-tracked his vocal, just like mm-hmm. that, bang, 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 one song after another. I, I think wow. it took more than an afternoon. Wow. It was so incredible. I mean, that doesn't happen now, does it? Look, yeah. it may have taken two days. What I'm trying to say is just yeah. like, gosh, you know, we got X amount of time left. we got to get all the vocals done. And he just flew through them, you know. And uh, I guess that's a good way. I, I think sometimes if you spend too long on, a, on uh, you know, if it's in my case, you get a good violin take, you think, oh, I'm not quite happy with that, it mm. you know, over and over and over again. You lose something, you know. Russell had the same thing. I remember him telling me that he's, Russell Bell used to play so many blinding solos, you know, want to get it better. And, you know, he just go, gosh, actually the first one was good. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Gary, Gary knew it was good, you know, it was, it was fine. So he was singing, he would double track, um, and uh, it all worked. And uh, the guy behind it, the engineer stroke producer, although Gary did end up producing himself, Mm. Uh, it's fine with it. He looked at us. We sort of ticked. We said, yes, yeah, that's fine to me. He said, Gary, do you want to come and listen? We said, no, move on to the next track. And that was it. That, well,
1: that's, that's the good. thing. about that period, it was, it was so impressive how quick, you know, the yeah. output as well. Like, that's you know, right. yeah.
0: You don't really um, have to think about it or analyse it. Uh, nowadays, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, it, it doesn't take me long to write a composition. It takes me weeks to finish a composition. Right. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. and also I, I i'll be quite honest I'm, I'm rubbish at mixing and and produce i'm not a producer you know I, I i don't mix i could i could record things well enough and and compose and arrange and all that type of thing but i would never never describe myself as a full-on engineer you know mm-hmm. i'd rather take that use that uh, you uh, use somebody else to take that processor uh just to to another level you know
1: and well, the album has um, certain classical um, moments as well, particularly on like Complex and and yeah. Me. Was was that your influence, Did yeah, Gary? Uh, see that? Yes, yeah,
0: so yes, it was. I I, I must say, it, I was given a lot of uh, freedom with the violin or, vi- or viola. Then, of course, mm. uh, Gary Gary structured all the keyboard parts. I I just played them. Uh, any of the keyboard stuff was um, between shared between. <laughs> uh myself and uh, Gary. But uh, with a violin, yeah, I mean complex is well known and well documented. that he went off to do some interview and this was a backing track that we demoed at um in Common Garden 16 track. And uh he just let me do it. I said, Well do you mind if I just have a go just filling in some stuff and I just got this basic simple string arrangement, a two part string arrangement on the viola. And he came back and he absolutely loved it. You know, it's like wow, you know, fantastic and put it on. I put it down quickly and you know, I, I said, well, I've got to do it again because it's slightly out of tune. It goes, no, no, it's great, it's absolutely fine. But uh, I listen to it now, I go, oh, God, it's out of tune. So kind of drives me mad, but OK, you know, just go, you know, come on, Chris, get over it. You know, it's still, <laughs> it's still part of the history of the making of The Pleasure principle.
1: Is one of my personal favorites, I think it's is a it? be- beautiful song, and um, you know, really? oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just why? so. Why? Well,
0: you ask me why? Well, I think
1: obviously the the story behind the, the lyrics is one thing, but I just think it's rare back then having with the rise of synth, um, having that kind of ballad element to it, True. um, and it's just so, um, just, just I think having that element of, of, of classical music as part of it. It yeah. just get, it just gave it a whole other dimension and um, I just think, well the whole album is timeless but I think Complex in particular is a very timeless track and I think right. it, it just sounds so fresh even today.
0: Yeah, oh, that's interesting, yeah. Right. So, well I guess, thank God it puts in the owner on it, it might not. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well that's the thing that elevates it, I think. I mean, it's it would have been beautiful anyway I'm sure, but um, yeah, it did add another ele- element to it. Um, And obviously, then came Telecon, and again, incredible. that these two incredible albums were made so quickly after each other. Um, For both of those albums, was it very much um, like a Gary Newman album with his vision, or did I mean you said yourself you had a bit of freedom here and there? But did did it feel like a bit of a band, like um, camaraderie as well?
0: Well, it did. The camaraderie was there. Um, It was Mm. different. Telecon was a totally different uh, beast to the Pleasure Principle. Bear in mind, the Pleasure Principle was only four of us. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, Benny came in and did a bit of violin And someone came in and I think was it Gary Robson, a good friend of his, did a bit of backing vocals But but that was it Whereas Telecom, it had a host of players on it you know, uh, Including Simple Minds doing hand claps <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was less I would say Telecom was less It wasn't an environment um, where, Like in Marcos Because this was recorded in Rock City in Shepparton Which hmm. owned And um, he uh, it, I don't remember having so much of a band vibe, you know, playing playing on it. Gary was determined to uh, uh, have, to, to structure it even more in his vision. I mean, he had the vision of the Prince, well, so don't get me wrong, um, mm. but it's a lot easier with four people. But um, by that time, uh, there was Dennis Haynes, there was Russ, there was Sed, there was Paul, myself, uh, maybe there were other people as well that came on board, I can't remember. Um, but uh, he did a lot of the synths, and, uh, and then Dennis, I mean, Dennis, uh, I'll, I'll hold, hold my hand up now and say he was an amazing keyboard player. He was far better than me. Um, as a pianist and stuff, there's a lot of piano in there. So he took he took that role on, and I was doing a lot of viola and some synthesizers and stuff. So I had, I, I was, uh, it was less of a task for me uh, compared to the pleasure principle. And uh, I I didn't mind, but I noticed that Gary, it, it's almost like he had a point to prove because he had, he was being so vilified in the British press that, mm-hmm. you know, some pretty, Pretty negative, nasty comments. Look, so, you know, you, you can judge people or whatever, uh, but judge it intellectually. Don't just sort of judge it on, mm. on emotion and just uh, supposition and just uh, interpreting this guy as this kind of freak or whatever, you know. And uh, uh, and and and, uh, and and so he felt, I'd imagine he felt, it seemed to us that he felt he had a point to prove. And uh, what he did, Telecom, is an amazing album. Mm. Really, really good album. I don't. People argue it's not as commercial as the uh, Pledge principle in some of the songs on replicas, but I mean that doesn't matter. You move forward. I mean, bearing in mind he wrote everything, and I've written albums before. And it is a, it is, it is, it is, it is so, so exhausting on you know, on an emotional level or any, any level. You know, it's tough. Um, yes, things are done quicker back in those days, but it's still a massive responsibility. He has to sort of produce. He has to come mm-hmm. up with ideas. And, um, yeah, so he was very prolific. Um, uh, But those were the kind of three albums, Replicas. I I divide his albums. Replicas, Pledge Principle, and Telecon as that sort of very early synth-based, original stuff, you know. um, After that, what's the album after? Was it Dance?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, Dance, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I must admit that I wasn't that keen. I mean, there's some great tracks on it, but I I thought it was... uh, I didn't I did find find it as good as the first
1: three. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in terms of Telecon, are there any particular tracks that you personally have a, a personal, like, an affinity with that you remember making and being part of?
0: I'm an agent. I used to love that. <laughs> uh, especially live. Uh, yeah. re, uh, re, re, rewind, re, what? rewind me. No, sorry. Remind me to smile.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a favourite uh, live, yeah. Uh, well,
0: yeah, they were great. It's great to do live. You know, yeah. Were. Powerful, really, really good. And uh, actually, was I die, you die? We're glass. Were they on the album as well, or were they just singles?
1: They were singles, and then they re-released the album and put oh, okay. them on. Okay, but were they, the, the
0: yeah. they were singles. But it was those two tracks were synonymous with that. that yeah, band, that yeah. yeah. Period. Yeah. Great tracks, great. Track. We're mm. glass is so so yeah. good. And and what a great piece of music to finish the uh, the live song mm. with. You know, it was, uh, you know, because, yeah, that moment at the end, we're all going, we all had a bit of a rock and roll period at, at a You know, the, the, the Russ and the, the bass player, you know, at the time, it was like, I think it's Andy McCoughlin that introduced this song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of rocking out. And, uh, uh, and and that was great fun. And it ch- gave a chance, a Gary chance to sort of, uh, you know, wave for the crowd. And sort mm-hmm. of it really leaves, on you, you left that stage on a real high. That was a great, great song to finish. Uh, and just a great song, anyway, and another one using that strange
1: interval. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as someone who I, I wasn't around at the time, unfortunately, and, and um, so I obviously I've watched back those those shows, and I, I wish I was around to see just how massive they were. It, they just looked like an incredible experience. But what well, was it were, like being on stage for you? Yeah, the yeah,
0: they,
1: they, they were. They, you got
0: actually, it's interesting it's well. I remember saying to Gary about this. Uh, When we did our first tour, or second tour of America, sorry, we were playing big stadiums, you know, Montreal Mm. Montreal Stadium, uh, uh, Los Angeles Forum. And I said, this works in an environment like this, you know, it's a big, big stage. The Americans are going absolutely mad. We spoke to people after and said, wow, we haven't seen anything like this, because there haven't really been anything as visual as this since The Wall, Big Floyd's The Wall. Mm. Uh, Because you've got to bear in mind that uh, post sort of prog rock and everything, what well, right round about 76, 77 punk exploded on the scene. And then this was, and then really after that, it was Gary Neumann exploded on the scene with, with, with a style of music which was completely different. mind as well. Gary Neiman, to me, Gary Neiman made synthesizers accessible and popular through song. Mm. And that's the irony of this as well. You know, cars as we can say two verses, like <laughs> some chorus. <laughs> yeah. But before then, there was a a young man in a young a young guy in the country I'm living in called John Michel Jar. Mm. And he had oxygen out in, what, 75 was it? Mm. Something like that. And it was huge, absolutely huge. So Synthesizers were commercial through Kim, you know, but no one had had taken it to the the next step of it being synthesizers and vocal Mm. and working. Yeah, Kraftwerk did a bit, sure. It's all (laughs) a (laughs) bit robotic, you know. But he even had a voice, you know, an an original voice uh, and wrote great songs, really great songs. So, our friend's Electric is an amazing piece of Mm -hmm. music. A, it, it was a it was a it was two compositions joined into one but god what a phenomenal piece of music great fun to play and strange arrangement all of a sudden it goes back into the sort of C C bum bum, bum just just for one one round of that and then back into the sort of build up on the F major chord before going to chorus. And it's like who does that? <laughs> who arranges <laughs> like that? Totally really angular, non-symmetric arrangements, you know yeah, it works. It works beautifully. Down the Park, oh, down the park to me—that's my favourite piece of music ever. Yeah. Um, love playing it live. Such a clever piece.
1: Um, I always thought it had a bit of a sort of almost folkness to it. Down the park. Like, I do not know about folk.
0: Well, yeah, it, it, it did have a very sort of modal feel about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to put in. Uh, you know, you don't want to. You, you don't want to make it. You had the choice for those calls of C D, B flat F, C D A. Mm. You could you could obey them into minor or major or whatever, but don't. You just you know we just kept them open, even live. Mm. And I would say to other keyboardists, don't fill in, don't put the third in. You know, don't put, don't make it a triad. Don't make it just make it, you know, tonic, dominant, tonic. So you've you've left out that that third. Oh, sorry, I get a bit technical here, but oh. so, <laughs> so so. Without the sort of, uh, you know, uh, without it being an obvious major or minor, it then becomes it becomes empty and sort of like almost Modeling feel. Mm. You know? And that's what uh, made it such a great
1: piece of music. Absolutely. Um, and so when when were you kind of first made aware that Gary was thinking of retiring at the time from live performances when he made that announcement? Because I know he'd, as you he said, he had been having a tough time with the press and, and the attention.
0: I'm not sure exactly. I knew. Prior to the three shows that we did at Wembley's yeah. Arena, um, he'd announced it, he said, write us off. So we were thinking, oh God. And I thought, we haven't peaked yet, you know, mm-hmm. this
3: the garden, you know, what a shame.
0: And uh, plus the fact that we've been out of work. <laughs> so <laughs> no, so uh, we had to start, we 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 gathered around and sort of said, well we need to carry on, should we stick together as a band, and that hence that's our Dramatists as well. Yeah. At the time, I don't remember exactly when he said it. Would it, would it have been around about the early part of the new year, 1981?
1: I see, yeah, I think that was around that time. Around
0: January, because it was in April, wasn't it? So mm-hmm. he probably announced it then. And I was like, I was kind of disappointed. I, you know, I didn't say this to him, I was just sort of... I, I, I got it, you know, because I thought, well, look, you know, if he carries on like this, and he's still being vilified by the press, he had a lot of pressure on it, he just wants a life, he had a passion for flying and all that sort of thing, he just wants to step, take a step back from it and uh, and just maybe <laughs> live a bit more of a normal life, you know. Mm. Uh, he, 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 he is a lovely person. He's a complex person. He's very, very, um, actually very shy, you know. He uh, comes across as very, very confident. Back in the back in the day, and he and he was very confident, very self-opinionated, but but not in a, a arrogant way. It was just like he had his opinions, and he would argue for those opinions and uh, and the rest of it. But I know, interesting, and you know, I know I know, I sort of like a, I'm going off piece a bit here, no. <laughs> some information. But if you, I remember there's a band. We never really taught politics, you know. Uh, he was accused of being a Thatcherite and a royalist and stuff like that, but. You know, he didn't live that sort of life. He was very, very, uh, you know, was kind to people. He we never discussed politics for Christ's sake. You know, uh, uh, so how can people sort of like uh, even judge him or something that they don't know?
1: So well, after those, um, I assume quite emotional farewell shows, um, that was a catalyst to, to form Dramatis. What, how did that idea come about with with you guys? Was it like an instant decision, or did it yes, take it a while?
0: Yeah, yeah. It, was, no, it was an instant decision. Uh, puff and Paul. Paul was the only one that didn't um, subscribe to the idea of dramatis. It was myself, mm. Russ, Dennis, and said And uh, uh, unfortunately, Dennis introduced us. Uh, it was not really his fault. You know, he's been he got involved with uh, a management company who were absolute rubbish. We signed too quickly, and uh, we just got we just ended up with the wrong. We went to the completely the wrong direction. Went to the wrong record company. Okay, mm. really nice people. It was Al John's Rocket Records, and. Um, uh, and it just wasn't right for us. We should have stuck with WEA, who wanted us, but the management company, you know, basically um, was so heavy-handed with trying to get a good, you know, a stupid deal, you know, absolutely stupid deal for us. They just just said, right, we're walking away. We'll go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did, and they shouldn't have done. In fact, uh, we should have done the negotiations ourselves. Simple as that. Just gone to WEA and, uh, and uh, negotiated. It would have been a lot easier. And it would have changed the course of Dramatis. but there you go; those these things happen, and uh, no good crying over Spilt Bill. But uh, but it, but it opened the door for us to go back to Gary uh, when he returned uh, with Warriors, the Warriors mm. Team, team Eighty Three, I do believe.
1: Yeah, and and did I read? <laughs> did I read there uh, was like a, another dimension where there could have been Boy George as part of this, or was Apparently, that thing? <laughs> yes. Uh, this,
0: all I, well, this is the story. I was sharing a flat. With uh in, in Kensington with a couple of guys and uh, friends of mine, one of those guy guy called Carl, and his girlfriend at the time was Eve. Well, known as Eve Ant, and it's Adam Ant's um ex uh, wife. And uh, I only know I knew it was Eve Ant. I never knew her second name, but Eve had, um come in a chat one with 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 me. I think Russ might have been, been there as well. And uh possibly Cedric, I can't remember exactly, but I remember having a conversation, certainly I was there because I remember hearing it, and she said, "Look, I've got this hairdresser friend called- uh, called George right who's looking to looking for a band to to join as a vocalist, and I went, "No, it's all right, we got Russell and Dennis who are doing the vocals, so. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that and uh turns Out to be Boy George, but I don't think it would have worked out. You know, can you imagine yeah. Boy George singing dramatic songs?
1: <laughs> I'd love to have heard that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the album still, you know, had some great. Hype. I mean, Love, Needs No Disguise is actually probably one of my favourite songs to feature Gary on vocals. I think it's just such a brilliant it's a very good song. song, isn't it? That was written
0: yeah. by Russell, Russell and Dennis. It was a really, really clever song. Actually, uh, Dennis did a lot of writing there. I, only, I think I only wrote one and a half songs on that album, because being my composer, but. Uh, I just kind of sit back and let it happen and uh, just happy to play my violin, my keyboards and uh, and actually a a corner which is a a straight crumb horn. So I actually got that on uh, Human Sacrifice, which is Russell's composition. Yeah, yeah, I I think we made a mistake with, uh, um, for future reference, we should have had one singer Gary's a guest, yes, that's why I love it, at least, no disguise. But having two singers, like, you know, kind of broke up the identity of the band. should have stuck with Russell.
1: Yeah. and uh, w- w- Were there any other plans to, to potentially do a second album? Um, I know yes. you released a few singles afterwards. We should
0: have done yeah. a second album, I just rust myself. Instead, actually, we did, uh, did go in and do a few demos, which were mm. It was one in particular called Sand and Stone, uh, which we did play live on a radio show, gosh, uh, about 1984, I think it would have be. been. 83, I don't remember exactly. But, um, uh, and, 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 you know, so you had a cigarette called, um, well, If I Could See In a Now or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> it's a ballad piano type thing. But, um, they're again badly produced. I mean, we had a whole run of bad luck. Um, uh, and I, I think, I think we had so much bad luck that Russell and I always said we'd get back together. And we never did. Mm. Until 2012, yeah. when we, I met up with Seth for the first time in about uh, 15 years, and Russ and I and Sid got the back together, we went down the pub, we went, we're back. This is Dramatis. We are back. Yes, we're going to get this album done. Three weeks later, Cedric had died. Mm. And to me, it, it, I was devastated. And to me, it finished Dramatis. To I me, mean, I not finished it because I'd love to have carried on with Russ, but... We don't live in the same country. Uh, I know you can do things remote and all that sort of thing, but we've always worked better together. When Dennis left the band, the predominant songwriting team was Russ and myself, and it worked really well. Mm. Sid would come in, he wrote Face on the Wall, and mm. we kind of arranged it and the rest of it. But Sid was an outsider, he would just bring in his songs, okay? Mm. But Russ and myself were a team, and it was a bloody good team. You know, we were coming out with the shame. Uh, which is a, I think it's a great song, really good piece of music. Um, I can sing it now, um, and it, and Sand and Stone as well. It was kind of moving forward, but something just, something was seriously missing in Sedway, and, and I, emotionally, I, well, emotionally sounds a little bit sort of like dramatic, doesn't it? But I just didn't feel like could carry It would be right to. to it didn't feel like it was working does that make sense mm-hmm. you know?
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah, it must a
0: have
1: been a tragic loss as well oh,
0: completely it's yeah. just yeah. so yeah. out of the blue you know we mm-hmm. couldn't believe it so in fact on the Saturday we were out partying on the Monday I had an email from um, Monday evening I had an email from us saying that says that's a massive heart attack so mm-hmm. I had to read it about four or five times I couldn't believe it Then I phoned it. phoned Julie's wife to his wife so like, could not believe it
1: well, there you go. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, um, we'll come back to Drummer in, in, in a bit, but um, you mentioned it as well. It was, must have been good to know that Gary was not only making new music still with Warriors and what have you, but he was, was got going back on tour as well, and, and then you remained with him for a yeah, big chunk of the 80s. That's true. Yeah,
0: Warriors was... was which shows how how my brain is deteriorating. Was Warriors the album after Dance? Uh,
1: uh, yes. I always know, have to remind yeah. myself, but that was,
0: yeah, I, I, I was involved in that uh, recording. That I remember, it was like uh, that. That that was good. That was like wow. It's just got back to.
1: Um... Oh no, it was I Assassin, Sorry, in between that as well. Oh, was Eye um, yeah, well. Then, then, then Warriors. Then, Warriors
0: then, I'm not familiar, familiar with that album, to be honest with you. But yeah. Warriors to me was it was was like sort of kind of going back a little bit to the sort of telecon sound. Does that make sense? You know? Mm, yeah. Was, yeah. It kind of, um, I felt it was a progression, but at the same time, there was, uh, you know, it was some some, some interesting pieces going.
1: Yeah. Well, Gary would say himself that he would lose his way musically by the end of the decade in the 80s, um, even though I still think all of his albums have, you know great Good. moments on them um, did did it did it feel like that at the time or was it just a tricky time in that era of the 80s and you know trying to stay with the times and all that kind of thing did you feel like that then
0: well we had, yeah we had feel that he, his popularity had obviously waned mm. uh, considerably um uh, but there again he was still each tour we did uh from warriors right through the last tour i did with him which was in 1989 i think it's called the skin mechanic or something Mm-hmm. Uh, it still had big sets. It still it was still you know sold out, uh, pretty much sold out. Maybe you know towns like I don't know Dundee or you know uh, Coventry on, on a or Stokes Stoke on a month, rainy Monday night was <laughs> a bit <laughs> down, but generally speaking, they're they're all it's all heaving. It have a Swiftodeon, uh lots of shows there, and they're all sold out still. So no, it's uh, still it's still a track. There's still traction there. You know he, he was he was he may, may have felt like it was diving down. Certainly. Um, Certainly America had got, gone from stadiums back to smaller theatres, and Europe, he was, never, he was never really big, because uh, he wasn't covered by WEA out there, because they had done lots of licensing deals to different territories. Uh, Japan, maybe he was still known there, I, I, I'm i not sure. Australia, New Zealand, certainly. But of course, uh, doing tours, especially taking a set round, uh, and Gary still very much was into the visuals of the set, so the set mm. was sacros- sacrosanct. So. That you had to have that set, and taking that abroad was was just not economically viable. It was like hard enough taking it abroad, uh, taking it around the UK, yeah. UK, and to try and make money. So I think he was still losing money on uh, on on the tours. But that, uh, whereas nowadays, of course, you make money on tours. But that was him. That was him. It was the it was the creativity, the artistry, the visual came before that, and uh, which is really admirable. But because uh, uh, each tour um, was really good, I think out of all of them. For me, visually, the weakest was one where we all wore white suits. Was at Berserker? <laughs> yeah, was mm. a and, uh, but uh, but it's still good. It's still very good. But uh, the Fury tour that was amazing. You know, the mm. two girls singing, you know, Karen and Kit, and then uh, myself and John uh, Cedric on the side, and then two guys there. It almost looked minimalist, but there was people on stage on this massive, great sort of like mm. flat, like looking um, one-dimensional set. But of course, it did have those uh, things, you know, moving up, who <laughs> came coming out, yeah. walking out of dry ice, you know. And uh, a lot of times, I did that. You couldn't see a bloody thing. You had to go and walk up the. <coughs> and, no, hang on a minute. Is that the one that did that? I got it wrong. No, I'm mixing that. Sorry, I'm mixing that with another one, another set. But there was one where, where you know, it opened up uh, and opened up like this. Dry ice came out. I had to walk up some steps at the front. No, that was the tour in 1987. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting all muddled here. And uh, the amount of times, so as, as you walked out, you can't see anything, right? But right there, and I was the first keyboard player out and John followed me. I think I was the first one out, actually, because the two guitars came out later, like Andy and Russ. And I forever... Mistime it hit my head on a light, you know, so you couldn't see it. I would just walked straight to a fucking light, you know, <laughs> so concussed, staggering up the stairs
1: <laughs> like a spinal
0: tap pretty or something. Way <laughs> in the end, I was walking out like that, you know, just holding yeah. my hand in front of my head. Um, no, The Fury was no, that's that was a great one. Sorry, we used to come up in a lift, mm. okay. Now, uh, that lift was fun because we go up on the lift, we go off, and we sort of play the set. And as we came down, it's after about the second or third show in, right? We were only that there wasn't a drink for us backstage, uh before going back for on calls. So we go down the lift, you know, crowd cheering, Gary's off stage the security off stage, you know, uh, and uh, and down it'll come. And there was one of our road crew, a guy called Shanks, okay? He was one of the lighting guys. And uh he was there dressed up as a waiter and he uh, all behind the set were all these optics that she put in there and a beer can, a beer beer barrel and everything else. They said it had their Shanks's bar, so you can imagine the lifts coming down, and behind that, obviously, the audience can't see because it's uh behind the set. He mm. rigged up a bar, <laughs>
1: <That's> so <much. laughs> we were like,
0: Great, chill and tonic, but he's Bacardi Coke, which you know. So after that, we were coming, we were back for the encore, and we were buzzing.
1: <laughs> I'm <not> surprised,
0: <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. So there's a lot of that going on, a lot of shenanigans, a lot of yeah. good backstage. Uh, there's a lot of seriousness, seriousness um, in terms of getting a show on. Mm. Which, as I said, the relief that, that all came that that kind of uh, disappeared when we finished the set with We Are Glass. You know, yeah. that uplifting piece of music, and everyone was happy. They all left happy. It starts off doom and gloom. It's all dystopian. It's dramatic. And it's like, wow, where's this going? But usually, the first number would be, I don't know, Sister Surprise or mm. um, the other one that goes. Uh, um, with a funny, funny jump, drum breaking it out, whatever. I can't remember. All... <laughs> it's been too many years. <laughs> I'm 67 years old. How do you expect me to remember?
1: But there was there any like reason behind you, um, stopping being part of Gary's live band? Was it just the change of style of music he was doing? Or was I was, was, it just... I
0: was getting a no, uh, nothing to do with that at all. Um, I actually thought he was writing some really good music, mm. uh, but um. I, I was getting into production uh, music, film and media production music. I'd uh, been doing a lot of work with uh, Chapel. I just, um, uh, back in '87, I did a big, big um, uh, drama horror uh, piece with the London Symphony Orchestra and Choir, mm. and I just absolutely loved it. That was where that was where I wanted to go, and I was getting more and more work. And this would have been, I think, a tour schedule for 1990, and I was working with the other keyboard player, Aid Orange. Mm it's kind of a bit embarrassing because he'd been on the last two tours with us and uh tony tony webb uh, gary's father and manager phoned up and said are you available for the tour and i said uh i should be yeah what are the dates you know and he goes oh by the way we're not using aid we're using uh john again john webb Mm. i just went and i was standing next to Aid. and i went "Oh, oh okay can i can i kind of get back to you on that you know and um I explained to Aid, and was very, very you know, disappointed and upset. And I just thought, could I really do this? You know, I'll be working mm-hmm. with it and all that type of thing. So I, I, and I was getting busy anyway. You know, so I, I phoned back, I said, Look, Tony, I'm really, really sorry. I wish Gary all the very best, but I'm working with Aid, and it's a bit embarrassing. You know, I, I can't really do it. And Tony was great, he understood. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a bloody ironic thing. You know, two years later, Aid's back in the band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was like, what? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. And Actually, I was a bit disappointed with Abe because he could have phoned me and told me because yeah. I was decent enough to him to sort of say, back down because I was working with him. Yeah. So showing support with him. But no, that pissed me off, uh, I'll be honest about it. And Abe knows that as well. So he could have just said, look, you know, Chris, I'm sorry, you know, you did Support me, but I'm back in the band now. I wouldn't bat it because mm-hmm. uh, I was I, w- I was living in France, uh, moved over there, and I was just starting a family. And uh, you know, I didn't have I didn't have uh, time for touring. I was just full on into composition.
1: Was um, so I am I right in saying that was it 2009 the, f- the first time you reunited with Gary on stage was it that pleasure principle anniversary shows? Yeah. Is that the first 2009. Time? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So how how was that? What was
0: that whole? Oh, pff- well, actually. I can't say I, 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 I loved it I enjoyed it but at the same time it was frustrating because I was only coming on at the Brighton Dome and the O2 for mm. two numbers mm. and I just when the band were going out of course you to imagine that but in, in my day we went out as a band and played together as a band I saw the new band going out Okay, mm. I was like, oh, I've got to wait for another bell.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Just back in, and it's lonely. You know, you're yeah. backstage there and you're waiting for your moment. You know, yeah. when you get out there, it was a really, really good, you know, got well received. It was, uh, the audience were fantastic and it was just wonderful uh, being out playing with Gary Yeah, uh, So we're going to dedicate this next song to Paul, but to help us
1: do that, I'd also like to bring in a, a special guest, yeah. Mr. Chris Payne.
0: Subsequently, I went on to do it with Russ in 2012, yeah. six days together. But that was great fun. And at least I had someone to share backstage with. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, the Wembley show, Wembley Arena, yeah. 40th anniversary, which was back in May 2022, wasn't
3: it? Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, there again, we had to wait for the bloody encore. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, and there again it was absolutely fantastic just great stepping out on stage with him and it, it, the years the years have passed between Russ and I leaving 19, say 1990 and now you know just or back, back in 2012 and Russ and I both did it. it hmm. seemed, seemed like that they seem to be like uh, it's like well yeah it feels like yesterday <laughs> yeah nothing's really changed yeah we've all grown up uh, we've all had, had, had experiences in life, we've all come together and, and and talked about that. Gary's talked about things that he was like when he was young and going through the uh, process of uh, you know being so famous so young. It's uh, It's good. It's going to have a, an effect on you. And bear in mind, I think Gary was 22 21, 22 mm-hmm. I was twenty two. All our road crew were 22 23, You know, we were all kids going <laughs> out there. I think the oldest roadie was about. Uh, 27, 28 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we're just, just kids getting out there and uh, doing this amazing show. Looking back at me, just think, wow, do you know, I don't know how I could do if I could do that. I don't, well, for a start, I don't think I could go through an hour and a half on stage without needing a pee. <laughs> <laughs>
1: For those who don't know, obviously outside your work with Gary, you've been a prolific musician. Obviously you haven't mentioned um you co-wrote Visage's Fate of Grey, which is one of the yeah. most you know iconic since pop songs ever, but also particularly obviously in the classical sphere and conducted your own work. So if you could give like a little history on that side of your career and your particular passions and, and highlights as well.
0: You're a sort of a library production music writer, so you're working your commissioned to back in the day, back in the eighties, to do C D length um Compositions, okay, which can be broken down into sections, you know, to be used for synchronization on, you know, fast, fast clearance synchronization anywhere around the world, because your 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 publishers have this sort of like huge sub-publishing network around the world, and um, and what's exciting about that is <laughs> is you, you you've kind of got a free hand of creativity, you know, you can go away and go, okay, I don't know if it works like this now, but back in the day when I did my first drama horror. Uh, Sort of um, piece of music, a, a, a project. Okay, so when you're doing uh, major orchestra and choral works in the style of Carlos Carmina Barana or Jerry Goldsmith's Goldsmith, mm-hmm. Omen, right? Back in the day, you know, the, the head of uh, chapel music sort of would take you out down to a pub lunch and say, "Right, I want you. This is your, this is your brief. I want you to write some scary music." <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm
2: just kidding. Gonna...
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Like, okay, great. So. Um, half the album was done with uh, London Symphony Orchestra and Choir. And uh, the other half I actually did with synthesizers. And mm. that was done at Billy Curry's studio in Notting Hill. Oh, wow. You know, it's, mm. uh, he had a really nice studio down in his basement. I, I did that. And I also did an early music album down there. Uh, and at a friend of mine, Nigel Bates, he had a studio in, at the time, Burgess Hill. Um, and in fact, Nigel got me into library music, funny enough. He was um, uh, part of the chapel music writing team and um, um, after that it was just because you kind of get a reputation for doing a certain style with me it's drama horror I can't even watch a horror film (laughs) (laughs) I can write drama horror so uh, I ended up doing about other four albums or four CDs worth stuff like that the last one I did was in Prague in 2001 I think it was something like that because then budgets dry up Now use samples, and that's what people are going down Mm. to break shame because there's nothing better than uh, a massive orchestra, sort of like in front of you, really, really. uh, And I know that. I mean, usually I'm in the booth, and I prefer that, and listening to the whole thing. But in Prague, uh, that was for B M G or Zomba. I can't remember. Yeah, B M G music, and uh, there were three of us: as myself and two other guys who. Were doing different types of horror music. They were doing, so one was doing hammer horror, one was doing another type of style. And um boss, I said to the guy, the, the producer there, I said, Well, who's conducting this? And he went, Well, you are. I mean, killing you The only conductor I've done was like, you know, back in music college, you know, just beating a point. <laughs> he goes, No, go out and do it. So there am I. I'm standing in front of like, I don't know, 70 or 80 sort of stone faced Czechs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The translator next to me. And okay? I'm Oh, hell. (laughs) And I just had a pencil and a sort of woolen hat on because it's a bit cold out there. You know, I've got to take the woolen hat off, so that must have looked, you know, quite interesting. And I was just beating out time, you know, to this this, this orchestra. And they were great. And it was just Mm. such a wonderful experience to just have had that. I don't want to do it again. I'm not a conductor, but just to be in control of an orchestra, okay, hearing your stuff being played, it's absolutely amazing. Then, of course, that gets used on film, TV, advertising, etc., etc. Um, Yeah, I, I continue to do that. I do less of it. Uh, I've been doing a lot of co-writes with, uh, uh, well, su- well, supposedly a Visage album with Rusty Egan, but uh have been things mm-hmm. with him. Uh, there's a very interesting girl called Katja Von Castle, who I've um, been working with. Uh, she, imagine a Marlene Dietrich with synths.
1: Amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, that's I've just got a publishing deal with that one. Um so right. we'll see how that goes. And recently I've been working with uh well, over the last year or two, I've been working with a guy called Zane Griff, mm. who uh, you probably heard of. He he uh look at I mean I won't go into details. If you want to, to find out about Zane Griff, just Google him. He'll he'll, he'll give you will give you all the information you need. He's a wonderful guy, he's got a great voice, and um in the style of Bowie, but he does have his own original voice, but there is a there is that sort of Bowie connection. And uh, we just released an album on Sony Music Japan called Double Life. And uh, that's also, that's just the Japanese territory. We licensed it to them. and It'll be coming out just as a digital download version on, I uh, can't remember who it is, but it'll just be on iTunes, mm. usual uh, suspects, uh, in the next two or three weeks. But if you want, if people want CDs, they have to go directly to Japan to buy them. And the <laughs> CD is very, very good. And very economical. Sorry, I sound like I'm selling myself. No. <laughs> but very interesting project. And uh, uh, we've got 18 tracks on it, with these, including bonus tracks. We've got a version of Cars. Oh, amazing. A version of Blue Jean. Um, and some Yellow Magic Orchestra stuff, because Sane was involved with them. And uh, it's all been really smooth and really brilliant. Uh, a friend of mine called Hilbert Bekovicci, was a... Uh, although he comes from a dynasty of screenplay writers, his, his father wrote uh, Shogun, you know, do you remember mm. the series? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Producer and Hill, but Hill went down the road of uh, sound engineer, producer, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and, and writer, music composer, and uh, he's worked with loads of people. He's worked with Stevie Wonder and uh, as an engineer, I think, for a couple of years with him. He's done sessions with Prince Madonna, you know, so uh-huh. he's yeah. a serious L.A. Uh, engineer any the engineer that produced it I managed to capture that almost kind of like raw sound of the eighties, but with a with a touch of you know modernization about mm. it in sense terms of drums mm. and, uh, and whatever. Here in the car, I feel safe as- taking up a lot of my time. What am I doing now? I finished a film school last year. I haven't done much film school work at the moment. I'm not exactly putting myself out there. Oh, yes. Certainly <laughs> so, so not a lot of people that know about me. I, I, I write. You know, I've always written stories and stuff like that. So I've, been, I've co-written this um, really interesting drama-thriller mystery thing called The, the Walk uh, with an Irish lady called Annie. And we are just, you know, at the moment, we're getting it through the door. We're trying to go to Irish production companies to see if we can get it uh, um, get it made.
3: Yeah, as,
0: I mean. as, a, as a sort of series of eight episodes, and, and then we'll shut the door on it. Not one of those. You're not looking for season after season. Yeah. It's like eight episodes, bang. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 what I like about that is that um, having a certain amount of frustration when you're working with directors or film score because I won't go into details, but the be it's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> you're not supposed to shift the music there. I've time-stamped it to go there, and they've shifted it. And it's like, oh, great. Yeah. Um, so I started writing some music. I went, this would be great drama, sort of thriller stuff. So I wrote down a short story yeah. based on music. So the music influenced me to write the short story. Yeah. So I've got a whole bag of music. So if Annie and I are lucky enough to get a deal, I mean, she wants to script write it or screenplay write it, and she's bloody good, mm. I'll be doing the music. So yeah. two birds to one stone. Or four bows at once <laughs> <laughs> uh, There you go So that's where I am At the moment um, Yes a, good, a dear friend of mine Patrick Wilson Has got his own Library company And I'm, just, I'm Desperately I've really got to Get my uh, act together And do some uh, Minimalist piano stuff For him I'm a bit late on mm. that uh, And as for the future To see what comes along You know mm. uh, uh, I'm very laid back About it You know I'm a pensioner So <laughs> But I'm a pensioner That hasn't retired I've only really stopped doing my Chinese medicine. You know, uh, music and writing, it's full on to the day I drop.
1: Yeah. Well, there's loads going on. That sounds all really exciting. I hope that gets made. Um, well, we'll end with... Uh, I had a few questions from, from listeners to send them in. Yeah. That said, um, speaking to you, so we we'll just go through those. Um, so first up, we've got uh, Simon who said, uh, what's the best or most obscure piece of Newman memorabilia that you might own?
0: Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a strange one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, nothing. I don't know anything. <laughs> it's all it's all disappeared. Uh, well, I, I think I think. Well, it what, it's not strange. It's quite common, but it's weird for me that I found an old Fury tour jacket, okay? mm. and I, I said to my wife. Oh, it's a Fury tour jacket. It's just there, buried in a in a drawer somewhere for years and years and years. And when I tried to put it on, it was like, it only came to like there, just past my shoulders. (laughs) I thought, Jesus Christ, like a baguette back then. It must be so skinny, you know. (laughs) Now I can't get it across my shoulders, you know. It's like, that is sad. So I said, right, right, Dominic, that's my wife. I said, I'm losing weight. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, Adrian Tudor asks, uh, on YouTube, I listen to Chris's classical music, Uh, it's beautiful. Um, what medieval instruments do you play and, and when now?
0: Uh, well, I still play them. Um, I've got crumb horns, obviously, mm. uh, which is uh, German for bent horn, the uh, wooden instrument. It's uh, synonymous with that buzzing <laughs> sort of sound. I've uh, got a Rauschfife, which is a straight instrument, very loud outdoor instrument. I've got lots of Baroque and Renaissance uh, recorders. Um, I have uh, what else? Or Bombard, which is a Breton instrument. Uh, that sounds punishingly loud, it's another again. It's an outdoor one. Uh, various flutes I've got, um, which are, aren't, aren't so much better. I've got a bass chord of use, which looks like this. I know your viewers, or, or your audience, won't go see it.
1: <laughs> Amazing.
0: massive great sort of like, big old lump of, of wood. Yeah. Uh, and what else do I have? Flutes, yeah. Uh, Bachelet. Ocarinas, which are brilliant, beautiful sounding instruments. Uh, I've got mandola and mandolin, which I know are more folk instruments. Uh, curiously, the only violin I have—I'll show it to you. <laughs> beauty. it's—I uh, don't have a. Yeah. Question, but I've got an electric one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It sounds great. It sounds yeah. pretty good. Uh, it's called a, 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 a Ed Steinberg. Yeah. So that's it. So carry on with the questions.
1: <laughs> so, um Well, next up we had. Um... Uh, Dressed to Kill, who asked, uh, what was your fave synth back then and how do modern VST synths compare?
0: Uh, My favourite synth has always been the mini-move, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, that's a very interesting question because uh, my friend, as I said, Nigel Bates, he has a collection of synths and we compared them. We played them and compared them, okay? And we came to the conclusion that in terms of sonority, no difference at all. In terms of ease of use, yes, the analogue scents are easier to sort of edit straight away. You see what I mean? From you know, mm. giving your mouse and dragging this around, this thing around and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's the only sort of discernible difference, uh, certainly not audio-wise, no, we couldn't find anything. We really tested them. Um, so that's it. Um, I will say obviously that the uh, the plug-in synths now are a lot more stable. Uh, back in the day, the good old analog synths, the boot was quite robust, but things like PolyMoogs and I remember the Prophet Five, oh God, they were all mm. like being soldered up and ended and, and break break down halfway through the show and stuff like that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think the uh, synths in general are a lot more hardy and a lot more is res- reliable. I mean, let's be honest, you wouldn't want I wouldn't want to go out on the road with a Profit 5, an ARP, obviously, uh, a, a, a fair light, certainly not. Certainly, my rody will kill me, or my temperature, sorry, keyboard temperature will kill me because it weighs a ton, or a PPG wave term, you know. Uh, no, um, but uh, no, I don't see, we, we, t- we generally, honestly, we tested it. We couldn't find any discernible difference between the two.
1: And um, finally, Beef Winkler asked uh, if you had one. Is there a particular fondest memory that you had with the band back in the day? Oh God,
0: yeah, there's just so many. I, I mean, all the time. I can only say this: every time we got together and laughed, we barely laughed. Right? Those were the great times. that.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Nice. Well, so looking back at your time with Gary, then, if how would you compare the Gary you know now to the like 21 year old version back in '79? And, and what do you think of? Uh, the way his music and career has morphed over time.
0: Well, it's, yes, obviously, like all of us, we've kind of matured. We've had life experience experiences. I mean, he's he, he has a very close, supportive wife and a great family. Mm. Uh, likewise, the same with me. You know, and we have that in common. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's a lot more mellow, I would say. Uh, but uh, you, know, you know, he could be back in the day, obviously, by his own admission. If his if, if 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 his mood was wrong, you know, it could go like that, just like a switch. You know, he, he's sort of like, okay, give him some space. Let's let, let him get on with it, and uh, we won't bother him because he's just going to blow. <laughs> but nowadays, you can talk to him about anything, and it's not he doesn't get upset. You know, and, uh, the, the 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 kind of the pressure's off, and he's you know, he's, as as he's got older, he he can he can handle that. Uh, that's that's what I imagine, anyway. Uh, bear in mind that we don't spend a huge amount of time with each other, it's an occasional email and we get we get together when he's back in the UK I'd like to spend more time with him but he's in LA and uh, Scotland and I'm in France, so <laughs> a bit tricky um, and uh, sorry, what's the other part of that question?
1: Oh, just how you think of the way his music and career has, has morphed in terms of the, the style of music yeah.
0: Well, that's that's the interesting thing I, mean, he, I, I do remember him telling me that uh, he says he has two careers, he has the band with me, myself and Russ and Andy, mm. and say, up until, say, about 1990, and then the new band, okay? which mm. have been, been, been with it now for a long, long time. And you've got the likes of Steve and, you know, Richard and David and uh, both Tims, you know, I knew them. Uh, um, and they are a great, great bunch of people and a great bunch of musicians. And uh, his... As a result, you know, he's got a very tight, solid unit behind him. His music is different. It's become, people describe it as industrial. I describe it as just bloody good. And I think that, um, I, I think that uh, gosh, you know, I'm hopeless with names. The, or oh, the one he filmed in the desert about five years ago.
1: Oh, yeah, My Name is Ruin.
0: But my mm. Name is Ruin, yeah, yeah. I think My Name is Ruin is a brilliant song, mm. worthy of number one, in my opinion. Mm. It's phenomenal and a great video. And, uh, and and there again, there is still that connection, that dystopian connection. It's kind of more industrial the sound, but he's he's moved on, and that's fine. That's what's kept him going. He's he's about to say sixty seven, but he'll kill me for that. He's sixty. He, he's uh, he's coming up sixty six. You know, um, and he's still at it. He's still creating. He's still wanting to to do it. He's still wanting to. Go, he's still, he'll still get on tour. He'll still. Be creative. It'll go through all those frustrations of of building an album up and all the rest of it, which I can understand because I've done it myself on uh, three or four occasions now. And it is tough. I'll be honest with you. Just like, I don't really like doing it. I like collaborating, but doing Mm. it, wow. So all credit to him.
1: Brilliant. Well, that's probably a great place to end it. So Chris Payne, thanks so much for your time today on Electric Friends. Thank you.
0: That's okay. No problem at all. No problem. Absolute pleasure.
1: So that was Chris Payne. I loved talking to Chris. I could have done so for hours. He was such a lovely man and very gracious with his time. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did. Uh, And thanks again for all your questions in advance too. Uh, I've got a few more interviews lined up in the near future. And I'll also be aiming to put the video version of that interview on my new YouTube page, which you can subscribe to now if you give it a search. I'm also on Facebook, X, Instagram and TikTok, all at Newman Podcast on those. And you can email me with anything you like at newmanpodcast at gmail.com or head to newmanpodcast.com for all past episodes. And please, of course, rate and review and subscribe. It means a huge amount when you do. Uh, So that's it. And until next time, bye for now.
0: Friends, Friends. a Gary Newman podcast celebrating the tracks by a musical pioneer. pioneer.